Welcome to another edition of the Inside BS Show. I'm Dave Lorenzo, and today we're talking about one of my favorite subjects, and that's intellectual property, protecting it, using it to make you more money, and helping you add value to your business by protecting your intangible assets. I have a fantastic guest for you today, somebody who's an expert in this sort of thing. His name is Steve Barron, and he's an intellectual property attorney. He's going to help us pull a rabbit out of our hat and make more money with our intellectual property. Please join me in welcoming Steve Barron to the Inside BS Show. Welcome, Steve. Thanks for joining us. Why don't you tell everybody what your background is and how you got into intellectual property law in the first place? Thanks. Uh, first of all, Dave, thanks for having me on the show. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here and to talk with you and and uh, share some information with your audience. Um, so, look, I became a lawyer because I couldn't be a magician. Uh, so that ties back to your opening. Um, when I was a kid, I started as a hobbyist magician at the age of eight, and I am today an ongoing hobbyist magician. As you can see, I never made it in that sphere, so here I am. A lowly lawyer uh, and I like to tell people that you know magicians uh, have to work in the art of lying carefully and lawyers have to work in the art of telling the truth carefully so I work on both ends of the spectrum uh, both lying for fun and telling the truth for profit so yeah uh, so how, how does being a magician help you become a better lawyer tell us about that well, it's a good question. I think, uh, you know, one of the great things about learning magic tricks, you know, every trick has, number one, a story, right? And it has some level of misdirection, so the audience looks over here when you don't want them to look over here, right? Um, and so sometimes, uh, believe it or not, in the law, <laughs> that skill comes in handy when you're making an argument and you have to sort of play up the strength of your argument over here and maybe downplay the weaknesses over there. So there's some parallels that way, right? Um, and it's also the art of presentation. I think that uh, any good performer, whether you're a magician, a singer, a songwriter, an actor, uh, has to be a, a good performer, has to captivate an audience. And the same holds true for a lawyer. And I'm not just saying lawyers who are litigators who go to court, although that's quite important there. It's any kind of a lawyer because you know, ultimately, you have to captivate your audience. You have to be able to interact with people. So I think the skills uh, transcend, you know, the performance in both spheres, both magic and the law. Does that make sure, sense? Sure, it makes a lot of sense. Also, I'm fascinated by the complexity and the attention to detail required for both. And that's, you know, candidly, when I read that you were a magician and then an intellectual property lawyer, I thought, well, this this makes perfect sense to me because there's a lot of detail. First of all, there's a lot of detail involved in the practice of law in general, but particularly in intellectual property law. And there's an enormous amount of detail in practicing magic. Um, I, I also find that you must negotiate all the time. You work with you work in entertainment, so you're handling complex agreements, right? And in negotiation, many, many times, without without being without lying, you want people to look over here while you're really focused on what's going on over here. So I see I see the corollary. Talk about attention to detail and how that has helped you from the time you were eight to the practice of law today. 
Sure. <clears throat> so, you know, when I think about um, uh, my early efforts at learning magic tricks, I, I literally used to take books out of the library uh, and I used to have to sit down with my mother because, you know, uh, magic trick books back in the day uh, had a series of instructions uh, usually followed with or accompanied by some level of pic pictures, right? So you'd see, you know, a card trick, somebody palming a card or whatever. And it was very hard for an eight-year-old kid to kind of put it all together. So my mother would sit with me and we kind of work through step by step. So, you know, magic tricks are very methodical in that way. And there's a certain progress and protocol you have to follow. And in some ways, the law is the same, right? Um, you have to sort of understand what the boundaries are, uh, and particularly boundaries that might be shifting very rapidly, as they often do in intellectual property law, and then figure out what is your client's objective and what are you trying to do, and then apply what you know about the law to their situation. And so, again, you know, I don't want to draw the parallels too much, but I think there is a certain, as you say, attention to detail in both spheres that I think have served me well uh, both in my my burgeoning, long-running hobbyist magic career and my professional life as a lawyer. So litigators have an expression of pulling a rabbit out of a hat when you end up either convincing the court or convincing a jury that something that seemed untenable was actually the case or, you know, you're able to prevail when the odds seem to be against you. And I, I love that, and if I if I were in your shoes, I would leverage that to the hilt. Um, let's talk a little bit now about the, and one of the reasons why this is my one of my favorite things to talk about is your practice area can be a profit center for most businesses, whereas the practice of law in many, many cases, in almost every other case, is an expense. Talk about the value in intellectual property to a business? Sure. Well, maybe the, a good jumping off point, Dave, would be to talk a little bit about what really intellectual property is, right? It's a term that people use and throw around. Um, and I think it's probably from a definitional standpoint helpful to kind of grasp what, what that means in the world of lawyers and the law, right? Um, so you think about property, generally speaking, right? We have real property. That's real estate, you know, the house, the land, etc. People have a good concept and grasp of that. We have chattel property. That's, you know, the car, other things that you buy, uh, tangible physical objects. And then <clears throat> we have this giant category we call intellectual property, and so one way to think about intellectual property is, as the name implies, is it's the products of the mind. It's the things that human beings are capable of creating uh, themselves through their own brain power, right? Broadly speaking, that's what is the umbrella that covers intellectual property. And then when you further kind of, uh, I guess, dissect it is a good way of putting it. Lawyers in this space think about intellectual property along four different quadrants or what I call buckets, right? There are trademarks, copyrights, trade secrets, and patents. Those are the four areas where the law recognizes and regulates intellectual property in different sort of ways. And I'll tell you 
very briefly about each one, just so that the audience can get a grasp of this, those non-lawyer people that are listening. So trademarks, we all encounter trademarks every single day of our life. There are trademarks right behind you on, you know, the, the, the banner that sits behind you, right? Those are trademarks. So what is a trademark? It's simply an identifier of the source of the goods, or in this case, the services, right? It is an identifier of the source of the goods and services. And it's a shorthand way for consumers to recognize what it is they're purchasing and where they're getting it from. And of course, we all encounter very famous trademarks every single day of our lives when we're, you know, eating our food, when we're drinking from our drinks, when we're uh, driving down the highway and we see billboards. Those are, you know, all examples of, of good, famous, solid trademarks. And I often, I teach a lot in this space. And when I teach classes on trademarks, I like to put up on the screen a list of very famous logos and then go around the room and have everybody in the room identify, you know, very quickly, you know, what Pepsi, Coke, uh, GM, etc. right? And without fail, everybody knows the logo and everybody knows what the goods or the services are. And then we stop and I say, okay, well, what does that present to you? It presents to you the power of the brand, the power of that mark, right? That a consumer, every single consumer in this room knows that that brand. And that's a very powerful thing, a powerful, powerful piece of intellectual property. So that's the trademark piece. Copyrights, a very broad swath of intellectual property covering any kind of original work of authorship. <clears throat> so if you write the next great American play or novel, or you write even nonfiction work, uh, if you make a movie, a video, if you write a musical song, if you make a sculpture, if you write a poem, all of those kinds of original works of authorship are protected under copyright law, again, in the Constitution and under federal law. Then we get to trade secrets. Trade secrets are uh, uh, what the name implies. They're secrets, right? The thing about trade secrets is they give you commercial value because nobody else knows them. They're formulas. They're uh, methods of making things that are not publicly available, and they, are, uh, they give you some commercial value, and you've taken steps to protect them. And the most famous example, of course, is the Coca-Cola recipe, which has been a trade secret for over 100 years. And then the final area of intellectual property, again, governed by federal law, are patents. And patents cover uh, inventions. Those are utility patents that cover the kinds of things that uh, scientists might make or engineers or biologists come up with a new way of creating a plant. Even plants can be covered by patents, a new kind of machine. And then there's even design patents over not the invention itself, but the look and feel of something. It's ornamental design. So those are the four buckets, trademarks, copyrights, trade secrets, and patents. And that's how the lawyers in the, in the universe, at least in the American universe, think about intellectual property. And that's how I think about intellectual property. Anyway, I'm running on. I don't want to. I don't want to trample all over you, Dave. So no, no. I thought. I think question? that's. I think that's a great description. Talk about how a business can leverage that the the four areas you described as a way to make it more valuable. Sure. So 
Uh, whenever I'm uh, dealing with a client, and particularly, let's say, an entrepreneur who's coming in and starting up a business, um, <clears throat> and uh, they may say to me, well, gee, Steve, why, why is it valuable for me to spend time, you know, uh, maybe registering my trademarks or registering copyrights in some of the stuff I'm making? And the answer I often give them is, hey, look, um, you know, you may uh, never need to enforce your rights on your marks or on the works that you create, but there may come a time when you have to. Or there may come a time when somebody else insinuates that you're trampling on their rights. And so it's important, you know, that you have uh, secure rights. But more importantly for the entrepreneur and to your question, somewhere down the road, if you build this business up, you may want to sell it someday. You may want to be acquired by, you know, the big guys down the block or across the country. And when that happens, if you're lucky enough for that to happen, and you get that big payday, one of the things that, that the lawyers for that big company will come in and ask you to do is to pre present all of your, uh, all of the ways that you secured that IP, right? Did you take all the, the necessary steps to, to go in and, and get registrations and protect yourself? And so I'll tell entrepreneurs that that's an important thing to do if somewhere down the road, they think their exit strategy is going to be to sell. And, you know, that's, an important thing, and it's a way for them to ultimately harness the value of their IP because they're going to have it all shored up in a nice, neat, packaged way with all the rights protected. So that's number one. Number two, you know, if you have good intellectual property, <clears throat> not only for your own business, you may be able to license it to others. If you have uh, great content, you know, you, you create a business that's involved in, in um, creating content for others. You can license that content. And, you know, you might write it once, but you can license it in different ways to hundreds or thousands of people and get a royalty payment. I have a client who's, you know, came up with a very catchy sort of logo back in the 1970s and then built a business over essentially licensing that logo and derivations of it all over the world. Um, to other parties who then in turn put it on their goods and services. So they've created a whole licensing business out of licensing trademarks that, you know, somebody just sort of designed and thought of back, you know, uh, 50 years ago. Um, and then in the world of, you know, trade secrets and patents, similarly, you can, you know, you can have uh, a formula for something that, that will bring you uh, you know, reams and reams of business over many, many years, whether it's Colonel Sanders' secret recipe or Coca-Cola or anything else along those lines that, you know, will reap the benefits forever. Uh, or in the case of patents, again, you know, you have a technology that allows you to, if it's patented, to prevent others from making, using, or selling any sort of invention with the same technology embodied in it if it reads upon the patent, unless they license it from you, right? And so again, there's a potential for a stream of income. So there are lots of ways in which intellectual property can be valuable, whether it's in those licensing arrangements or in the ultimate sale of your business where you have something packaged up that you can sell. All right. So Steve, before uh, you answer this next question, I want you to give it a little thought and we got to take care of a little business. The next question I'm going to ask you is, 
what is the best way to come up with a name for something that is easily protectable? Don't answer just yet because I need to let folks know that today's show is brought to you by Sandrowski Corporate Advisors. Since 1983, Sandrowski Corporate Advisors has provided expert client service to a nationwide base of professionals and individuals, particularly high net worth individuals. And they have offices in Metro Detroit and Bloomfield Hills, Michigan, and in Chicago, Illinois. They specialize in tax planning, consulting, family office advisory, business valuation, litigation support, forensic accounting, and risk management. If you need someone to help you with structuring a family office or minimizing the amount of exposure you have to taxes, there's nobody better than Sandrowski Corporate Advisors. You can reach them by calling 866-717-1607. That's 866-717-1607. We're also brought to you by My Revenue Roadmap Guide. Now, if you want to build a professional service practice, you want to grow your book of business, there's no easier way than to follow my step-by-step guide, and I want to give it to you for free. Here's what you need to do. Go to revenueroadmapguide.com, revenueroadmapguide.com, enter your contact info there. You can download the business development plan that I've created and refined over the years. You can customize it to your practice make more money, and have more fun doing it, revenueroadmapguide.com. It's my gift to you for being a valued listener, a valued viewer of the Inside BS Show. We're talking with Steve Barron. He's an intellectual property attorney, and you can reach Steve by going to bhhlawfirm.com. That's bhhlawfirm.com. Also, you can call 312-741-1030. I'm going to put all Steve's contact info as well as his bio in the show notes so you can reach out to him. All right, Steve, before we took care of that little business there, I asked you a question, and the question was, what's the best way to come up with a name that we can protect, whether it's a name for our business or a name for a product or a service? What's the best way to come up with a name? Dave, I don't know if there's one single path, but let me just tell you how I think about it as a trademark lawyer, right? Which is that you want to pick a name that is catchy, memorable, helps to call to mind what it is you do or offer to sell. Um, And again, from the lawyer's perspective, is not being used by somebody else, right? That's where lawyers come in because we can help review the name or names that you're considering and the logos and determine whether they are already being used in commerce because that's where the trademark law sort of lands on you, right? If you are first in time, then you are first in right, which is to say that if there's nobody else using that name or anything that's confusingly similar to that name to sell similar goods or services, then you're golden. And so that's where the lawyers come in. We help you sort of determine that. And so what, what I ask my clients to do is I say, look, go out there, have fun, have a brainstorming session, sit down with your team or bring in your creative people. Or if you're going to hire a marketing agency, that's terrific. And then come up with your list of your top three to five that you really love. And then that's when you bring me in because I can take those and I can look to see whether or not Uh, They're already in use in commerce or the subject of an existing trademark registration or a pending application. And that's how 
I go through the process. I say to the client, have fun, pick something or a bunch of things that you like, and then let's see what's available. I also like to give clients a little bit of knowledge and power to teach them a little, you know, how to do some of their own vetting so that they don't have to waste a lot of time because I can't tell you how many times, Dave, somebody will come to me and say, you know, oh, I just, you know, this is the thing that I just love. And then, you know, I'll do a quick search and I'll find three others that are already out there and have been there for 10 years. And I'll say, didn't you Google this or do any kind of vetting yourself? Right. So, you know, don't fall in love until you've taken a look at the landscape is what I like to say to clients. Okay. Now what happens, Steve, if we've, we've done all that work, right? You've taken care of protecting our, our mark for us. You've taken care of protecting our name. And then all of a sudden somebody else decides maybe they do it intentionally. Maybe they do it unintentionally, but they're using our stuff. They're infringing on our mark. What happens to, what do we do when that happens? Right, right. So in that situation where you have a valid mark and you've been using it first or before the, the what we call in the law, the junior user, the person that comes later, uh, I think the, uh, you consult with your lawyer, of course, and the lawyer analyzes. In my case, I would look to say, well, what are the, what's the strength of your right here and were you there really first? And then uh, oftentimes... I will prepare a so-called cease and desist letter. People have probably heard that term before. It's just a fancy word for a letter that usually comes from a lawyer uh, to the other party who is using the mark or potentially infringing on the mark. It says, look, here's the deal. You're infringing. You're in violation of our client's rights. You may be in violation of uh, federal law and other law. And we ask that you stop. And uh, if you don't stop, you maybe wind up on the bottom half of a case caption in, in federal court somewhere, right? And that's the next step, which is potentially going to court and suing for trademark infringement. Uh, and, um, you know, that's a whole other level of involvement. But from the standpoint of the client whose market is, it may be necessary. And it sometimes is. I, I monitor new cases in Chicago where I practice every day. And I can tell you almost without fail that every single day when I get a, a daily email of new cases filed in the federal court here in Chicago, that there's anywhere from one to five or six new trademark cases every single day. And that's in one court in one city in, in America. So it happens a lot. Why, why is it important when you when you become aware that someone is using a mark that you've protected, why is it important that you take that step and say, hey, stop using my mark? Why does that matter, Steve? Yeah, that's a good question. It matters because if you fail to police your own rights, your own mark, you can be deemed to waive those rights, right? In other words, if you sit on your rights and you take no action, uh, then you're at risk of losing the right. The trademark becomes essentially not valuable to you anymore. And so, you know, it's, it's both a, a sort of a privilege, but also an obligation when you get a trademark to actually monitor the landscape and to take action to stop infringers. Because if you don't, to your point, uh, you may lose that right. And it's not that tough. There are services out there that exist to do this for you. You pay a couple of bucks, they keep an eye on it, and the minute something pops up, you get a notification, you forward it to Steve. Steve says, well, you know, maybe we should, maybe, let me just call and tell him to stop. I don't think that, I think they're a lazy infringer, 
or hey, look, they're in the same space as you. They're this is this is really tough. We gotta we gotta get tough with them. We gotta send an official cease and desist letter. It's not that hard to do, but if you know you're in for a penny, you're in for a pound with this. So if you're gonna spend the money, spend the time, hire Steve to protect the mark. Then you got to monitor the mark, and you got to make sure you're on top of anybody who, whether they're a lazy infringer, they don't know they're infringing, or they're they're doing it intentionally. You got to let them know because that's the whole point in having this, so that you can you know build that equity in your business and use the intellectual property for those purposes. All right, Steve. So what happens if I, I have a case for you, and I'm gonna I'm gonna share this with you, and you can you can give us the solution. So I have a client, I'm not going to use his name, but let's say, let's say his name was uh, McDonald and he opens up a restaurant, right? And he names his restaurant McDonald's because it's named after him and the, and McDonald's, the company comes after him. He's a, a fancy French restaurant and he names it McDonald's, but McDonald's, the hamburger company comes after him. What does he do? I mean, let's say he's oblivious to the fact that there was another restaurant company named McDonald's. What, what happens next? He gets, you know, he gets this letter and he's built this big sign. It's on top of his building, spent tens of thousands of dollars. What does he do? I mean, first he calls you, but then what do you guys do? Right, right. So, look, in those situations, believe it or not, have happened. Uh, it would be hard to fathom uh, somebody not being aware of. Well, uh, I actually McDonald's have a client franchise. going through this now. It's not as it's not as obvious as that, but it was it yeah. was in yeah. in the industry in which he infringed. It would have been obvious if he was in the same industry as the giant, right? So, what do we do? Right, right, right. So, look, I mean, in those types of situations, and I've been on both sides of the aisle here. Right, I've been the enforcer on behalf of the trademark owner, and I've been defending you know, the alleged infringer in these situations. And so in these situations, look, you know, you do have some, obviously some right to use your name in a business. But if somebody, uh, if a large corporation has indeed been operating for many years and, and become famous in a particular sphere, let's say in selling hamburgers, for example, um, you're going to have a really hard, tough road to hoe in terms of, you know, being able to establish a right to use your name. And so usually in a situation like that, what we're trying to do is extract the client from a difficult situation, give them some time to come up with some alternative branding and mitigate the risk of any sort of damages or money that the large corporation might be seeking from them, right? So to be able to say, look, you know, we're sorry this happened, uh, we'll change our name, we need six months to do it, or a year, or, you know, maybe even start with a proposition of, look, we will uh, continue to, to keep our little shop open, but we want to do it uh, only in our little radius here in Rockford, Illinois. We won't go outside of Rockford. And every on every menu, we'll put a little asterisk that says, not affiliated with McDonald's Corporation, right? Some kind of a disclaimer. So there are solutions, there are ways to try to navigate that. But in an imbalance like that, number one with you know the, the resources of the, the, the companies, usually the situation calls for uh, a quick extraction from the situation. So I'll tell you, I'll tell you another story. And uh, it just while you were describing this, it came to my mind. So there was uh, there was a gentleman here 
this older gentleman who had a print shop and he had been, this is in Miami and the print shop had been operating in Miami for maybe 40 years. The gentleman was in his sixties when this situation came to be. The name of his shop was the graphic umbrella and his, uh, his logo was a red umbrella and the word graphic umbrella, the words graphic umbrella under it. Well, there was a financial services company now. I'm thinking back maybe 10 years. It was like UBS, I think, that used the umbrella in their logo. And Gene is the gentleman's name who owned the graphic umbrella. He'd been operating, like I said, for 40 years with this, with this logo, you know, big sign in, on his shop. Nobody cared. Well, I guess there was a financial conference here in Miami, and there was traffic on the normal way to the airport, and an executive from UBS was rerouted right by Gene's print shop. And his, he's, that they stop his car. He's, stop the car! Stops right in front of Gene's print shop, takes a picture, and brings it back to the legal department, okay? Legal department says, ah, oh, clear, clearly, clearly infringement. The umbrella is exactly the same, right? Poor Gene. Guy had been operating for 40 years. All of a sudden, he gets a cease and desist letter. The lawyer's calling him. The settlement was this, okay? Because Gene couldn't afford to change his sign. The sign was like, you know, $5,000, $7,000. Gene just couldn't afford to change the sign. Or he could have, but he didn't want to. UBS paid for him to change his sign. And they paid for him to reprint his own logos and everything. So they were, you know, it, they were, they were understanding of the situation that it was a little guy they knew nobody was going to confuse gene's print shop with the financial services firm but they still didn't want the umbrella on this i mean his store wasn't the best looking store in the town either so they didn't want their umbrella on this store so they paid for him to get a new sign and everything so the point i'm trying to make is it's not the end of the world, right? If you make a mistake or something like that and you get a good lawyer like Steve, he can help you and maybe you can work something out where you can either leave the name and operate in a very narrow niche so that you're not going to have a problem with confusion or work something out like this. All right, Steve. So before we wrap up today, talk a little bit about when it makes sense to involve you in the process. So we're not talking about startup businesses, but like I got a new idea for a product line or something. At what point do I call you? At what point do I get you involved in the process? I would say earlier rather than later. Uh, certainly, uh, I mean, before you get to market, of course. Um, and I don't think you have to call me, you know, as you're waking up in the morning after the epiphany dream you had, right? Uh, but I do think that after you've had some, you know, uh, thorough vetting of it internally and you want to understand whether or not you have a particularly good brand or a good idea that's protectable in some way, shape or form under IP conventions, you know, I think that's a good time to call, call me. Let's have 30 minutes on the phone to talk through this and see if there are legs on this thing, right? I think at the outset, it's not a huge investment of legal time or effort just to sort of hear about what the prospects are and do a little bit of sort of thinking and vetting. So I would say pretty early on in the process, but again, not right when you wake up from your Okay, dream. and for those, uh, those professionals who are listening or who are watching, who is the ideal referral for you 
if we want to connect you with someone? Who's the who's the perfect person to connect with uh, Stephen Barron? Thanks for asking. First of all, I love working with any kind of a client that has a creative dream from a small entrepreneur who's just starting a business out of, you know, the garage all the way up to Fortune 500 companies that are interested in launching a line or a product and they want to understand, you know, is the brand clear? Do we have rights in this thing? And so anybody that has a creative spark that wants to work with a lawyer that can help them forge a pathway. I want to be a lawyer who they think of as a partner in helping them realize whatever the dream is and helping them navigate the pathways toward that dream, right? I don't want to be the lawyer that says can't, won't, shouldn't. I want to be the lawyer that says, okay, I think you can. There are some risks, but here are three different ways you can approach it. And let's make a decision together about which one works for you the best. So uh, small to large, uh, anybody that has a creative spirit and a creative idea, uh, a brand name, I'm the guy. All right. So I'm going to ask you now to think of three things, three big takeaways from our time together. So let's come up with three big takeaways before we hear what those are. Remember, our friends at Sandrowski Corporate Advisors, This show is made possible by their uh, generous support. If you have a family office or you're concerned about tax planning, you want to minimize your tax exposure, or you need litigation support, Sandrowski Corporate Advisors, they're the people to call. You can reach them at 866-717-1607. And my Revenue Roadmap Guide, go to revenueroadmapguide.com, enter your contact info, download your business development plan there for free. All right, Steve, what are the three big takeaways we need to have from our time together today? What are the three things we should remember? All right, here's here, here's my top three. And uh, number one, intellectual property can be a very valuable asset to any business. That's number one. Number two, no matter the type of business, whether it's you know a tool and die manufacturer or a high-tech industry making software or software products, everybody's creating some form of intellectual property in their business. And so they should take steps to understand it and protect it. And number three, um, don't wait to get a lawyer involved, whether it's on the offensive side of protecting your rights or on the defensive side because you've gotten some kind of a letter or communication from a third party. And I could talk and give you examples all day long about parties that waited too long on either side of that equation. Call me. I'm always happy to talk. I'm always happy to give you a little bit of time. The number you can call to reach (laughs) Steve is 312-741-1030. Steve, thanks for being here and educating us on how intellectual property can add value to our business. Thank you, Dave. A lot of fun. Take care. All right, folks, that'll do it for another episode of the Inside BS Show. Where else can you have this much fun? My guest today was Steve Barron, and he's an intellectual property attorney and a litigator. You can find out all about him in the show notes. Join us here again tomorrow for another edition of our show where we take you inside business strategy and give you all the insider business secrets. Until then, here's hoping you make a great living and live a great life.